Our second scripture passage is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word of the Lord. Good morning to you all. I'm honored to worship here with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Murata. I'm a pastor on staff just down the road at the Falls Church Anglican. And I'm a pastoral resident there in a season of training, getting ready to move down to Richmond, Virginia in about six months uh, this coming summer in order to plant a new church down there. I got to meet a lot of you back in the month of May. I was an intern here for four short weeks before Johnny fired me. Um, But it's good to be back. Um, I'm really excited to be here. One of the reasons why I love this church is the multi-generational dynamic that exists in this room right now. It's a beautiful thing. I am firmly convinced that the church finds its fullest expression when there are two-year-olds and 82-year-olds in the same room for the same reason. And that's what we've got here. Today's sermon is going to deal with two of the most spiritual and yet ordinary things. Um, Excuse me, something that is both spiritual and ordinary. We're going to talk about a meal, people eating food together. And before we do, I want to give you just a brief overview of the story of food all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The story of God's people and food can be traced from the beginning to the end of the Bible. In the first chapters of Genesis, we see that God feeds his people by giving them a garden filled with good things to eat. Humanity enjoys being fed by God, but when humanity reaches out to grasp food that was not given to them by God, humanity's relationship with God was broken and the world fell into sin. Later, when God began restoring his people to himself by gathering the Israelite nation together and setting them free from slavery in Egypt and leading them out into the wilderness, he fed them with food that literally came down from heaven. It was manna. It was this bread-like substance that God gave his people to eat. And God was leading them to a future promised land that was said to be flowing with milk and honey, which was a metaphorical way of saying literally running over with great things to eat. In our text today... Jesus claims to be bread from heaven, alluding to the manna that God provided his people in the wilderness. Now, at the very end of Scripture, if you go to the very end of the Bible, the vision that God gives his people of their future is what? It's a feast. Humanity and God sitting at a table together, a table filled with good food. 
and they eat together. God is committed to feeding his people and our text today shows us this in a new light. Now, a few of the things you should notice about this text and then I'm gonna reread it again so it can be fresh in our minds. It was written by a man named John who was a personal disciple and close friend of Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He ate many meals with him. And you'll notice that this passage includes a group of people called the Jews. Now, who are these Jewish people? One day, actually the day before this interaction takes place, a crowd of Jewish people have uh, followed Jesus and he sits down and he teaches them. And, uh, And the teaching goes on late into the day. They're very hungry and Jesus miraculously feeds all 5,000 plus of them. And so the next day, wouldn't you know it, they come back looking for another free meal. And that's where this interaction takes place. So let's refresh our minds. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 51. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it so you can have it right in front of you as we talk about it today. If you don't, just listen. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. One more time. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We're going to explore two things today. First, we're going to explore how God beckons us to his table. Second, we're going to explore how God feeds us with the life-giving flesh of Jesus. God beckons us to his table and he feeds us with the life-giving flesh of Jesus. These are two very big and very important realities in the Christian life and faith, and so we're going to take them one at a time. But before we do, a story. You can't know me very long without hearing me talk about one of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry. Some of you know that name. Some of you have read some of his work before. He's best known for writing about food and farming and is credited with having a pretty major role behind starting our contemporary food ethics. Whenever you eat a grass-fed burger or a free-range chicken or organic asparagus, you can know that there's a Kentucky poet farmer somewhere behind that. One of his short fiction stories is set roughly 100 years ago and involves the harvest season at a family farm. Neighbors and friends have come from far and wide to assist a family in cutting and threshing the wheat, and it's hard labor, and the crew works up quite an appetite each day. And sometime around noon, the primary meal of the day is served. Hot and sweaty people gather around a long table to drink iced tea and to eat vegetables from the garden and to dine on roasted chicken plucked straight from the barnyard, But the main character in this scene 
It's not the food, and it's not the hot, sweaty workers around the table. It's the grandmother. She is the one who has set the table. She's cooked the harvest meal, and she is serving the weary laborers. And as Barry describes the scene, he mentions that this grandmother's presence is what really made this meal special. The meal was not mere food. It was the grandmother's meal. The whole kitchen and dining room carried her presence. The workers were at her table, and they knew it. Those meals fed more than just their bodies. Not only was their thirst quenched by iced tea, their souls were refreshed. Not only were their stomachs filled, but their hearts were full of friendship and camaraderie and laughter. And at the center of it all was the grandmother, calling the harvesters to the table so that she might feed and refresh them. I really love this picture. It's, it's rich and almost gritty, but still beautiful. And you can appreciate what it might be like to sit at such a table, even if you've never worked in a field um, and then come in in sweaty overalls to sit down in a place like this. You can still imagine it. With that image lingering in the back of your mind, let's explore that first idea. God beckons us to his table. What does that mean? Verse 44 in this text says that no one can come to God unless God draws them. So the question is, how does God draw people to himself? How does he actually do that? And we've got to say that at one level, God is very mysterious, and we will never, we will never fully grasp or comprehend the ways in which he woos us into relationship with himself. However, there are clues in this text, and I think they'll help us. One of the clues comes right after Jesus makes this claim that God draws people to himself. Jesus then goes on to describe himself as the bread of eternal life, and he compares himself to the bread that God used to feed his people, only he is eternal and therefore permanently satisfying. So what's the clue? How would somebody know that they are being drawn by God? It's the same thing that draws any of us to any table. It's hunger. It's the internal hunger. It's the internal gnawing, aching, pinching, craving hunger inside of us. All of us have come into the world as hungry creatures. Our first cries are often cries of hunger. And as we grow, our appetites, whether physical or emotional, sexual, relational, intellectual, all of these appetites grow within us as well, don't they? And we begin to find all sorts of places to satisfy these appetites. But there's one appetite that often goes unnamed. And it's the hunger for God. And it can feel like the hunger for purpose or the hunger for significance or the, or the appetite to, to know and to be known in the most intimate of ways. It's an appetite that can only be satisfied by the one who created it. It is, in fact, a hunger that God has placed inside each one of his creatures, a built-in craving for himself. And if you're new to the Christian faith or you've never heard it put in this language before, that can at first blush sound uh, selfish or cruel or manipulative. Why on earth would God make people with an intentional lack, an intentional hole, an intentional uh, something that they are without? Why would he do that? Why would he make people need him? Isn't that just manipulative? Think about when hunger is cruel and when it's not. 
When is hunger actually joyful? Hunger is joyful when what? When there's a plate of food in front of you. Hunger's not cruel then. It's a great thing. It makes the food taste better. It's even more satisfying when you're hungry. Hunger is cruel when there is no food. If God were to create this inside of us and then not offer to fill it, that would be cruel. But to create a hunger inside of us and then to offer to fill it, that's actually joy. That's actually a gift. And we know that in existential and experiential ways, even if we don't recognize it theologically. Many of you reached the point this week where you were wearing sweatpants and you were wandering around your house and there were trays of holiday treats all around you and none of them were appealing because you weren't hungry anymore, because you've been stuffed to the gills all week long, at least if you're in the Murata family. When you're hungry and there's a hot steaming plate of food in front of you, then hunger is actually a joy. And that's when even the simplest food is bursting with flavor and is most satisfying in your stomach. Over the years, I've picked up other clues from men and women and teenagers and children as they've described this internal hunger, this appetite for God. And they've described it with all sorts of different language. And I've heard things like, uh, there's a a missing part of my soul, or there's a sense of being broken on the inside, or there's this vacuum in my heart, or there's this ache that nothing, I can't find anything to soothe it. Or there's this inner restlessness, and I I can't seem to satisfy it with travel or adventure or romance or the wildest of sexual fantasies or, or the best food or the most comfortable lifestyle or the most satisfying job. I just can't find anything for that appetite. And they're all pointing to the reality that God has made each human creature, each one of us here, with a chief appetite, and that chief appetite is for himself. It's the hunger that draws us to God. And that is one of the ways that God beckons us to him by creating that hunger within us and then offering to satisfy it. So let's think about that second idea, that God feeds us with the life-giving flesh of Jesus. Verse 51 tells us, uh, this is what Jesus said. These are his words. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is telling the Jewish crowds, and because of John's recorded words, all Christians throughout history and us today, that he is the spiritual food that will satisfy that chief appetite. These people, these Jewish people, have come to Jesus with their physical hunger, a hunger they can recognize. Remember, he fed 5,000 of them yesterday with a miracle, and now they're back. Each one of us walked into James Madison High School this morning with a variety of unsatisfied appetites. And each of us are tempted in our own unique ways to think that if we could just get a few of those appetites satisfied, then we would have all that we need. And Jesus' word to these Jewish people is actually his same word to all of us this morning. And it's a word that reframes the conversation. Jesus says, in summary, you know what you really need to eat? You really need to eat me. That will satisfy you. See, you and I don't need a quick fix to satiate a temporary hunger. We need something that will sustain and satisfy us 
eternally for the long haul. All the other food that God has provided for his people all throughout history, remember that long story that we mentioned in the beginning, all of that story was just a foretaste, literally a foretaste with food, all pointing to the day when Jesus would satisfy the entire world with himself. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that that idea still doesn't explain how Jesus actually does this. And this is why you can imagine why the Jews who were listening to Jesus were so concerned with what he was saying. This is why they were grumbling. This is why they were unhappy. This is why after Jesus finished talking, they thought, what on earth? This doesn't make any sense at all. It seems like Jesus is saying that he is actually going to feed people with himself. And he seems to be making the point that this is not some sort of abstract metaphorical thing. He's actually, he actually means this. We have the comfort of being where we are in history right now. And so we have the, the ability to look back and see how this played out in Jesus' life. We have the privilege of seeing how Jesus is actually the consummation of the world's deep hunger. And in fact, that's what you, did you know that that's what you just celebrated in Christmas? In Christmas, you just celebrated how God initiated towards feeding the world eternally for good in Jesus. And looking back, we can see how before Jesus went to his death on the cross, he instituted communion at his last supper with the disciples. He gave them bread and wine and commanded them to eat it and drink it as his flesh and as his blood. And John, the author of this passage, was sitting at the table. He was there. And so when it came time for him to write these words that we read this morning, you know what he had in mind? He had in mind where Jesus was taking him. He had in mind the communion table. He knew what Jesus was foreshadowing. And he knew what the practice of communion would mean to the early church. How this meal right over here, he knew how this meal would be cherished by billions over the centuries and I want to say one quick thing about this meal, because it's a meal that you're going to be invited to take later in this service. Let's think about Jesus' words in verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If you're new here, you'll notice that at this table, there is not, thankfully, literally human flesh and blood. There's bread and there's wine. So, is this just a metaphorical reenactment? No, not really. We believe that at this table, Jesus is spiritually present with us. Just as God becoming a human being in Jesus at Christmas is a place where the spiritual and the ordinary collide, in the same way, Jesus' presence here with us in the ordinary elements of bread and wine, the spiritual and the ordinary coming together, it's a place where the spiritual God and the ordinary physical, the physical world collide. And they collided at Christmas, and they collide here at the table. If Jesus, the true bread of life, were not actually present here at this table, then, it would have, then this bread and this wine would have no effective power to refresh our souls by reconnecting us with Jesus. His presence here 
makes all the difference. And just to illustrate the point, I want you to go back with me to that lingering image in the back of your mind, that table filled with hot and sweaty harvest workers. Wendell Berry concludes that little story with a powerful twist. He fast forwards through time to a day when the harvesters were tromping in to feast together at the table and they find that the grandmother is too old and too weak to cook for them. And so a young man volunteers to make the meal and so he grabs a couple pounds of ground beef and he slaps together some burgers and he grills them really quickly and then he puts them together between two store-bought buns and he piles them up on the table and all of the harvest workers stare at this pile of monochromatic burgers and it's just not the same. There used to be a colorful harvest feast prepared by this wonderful grandmother and something about her presence there changed the entire atmosphere and transformed it from a table with mere calories to a place where souls were refreshed. Now the grandmother's presence is not there and so something is different. And Barry leaves the reader to draw the obvious conclusion that it's the presence of the grandmother overseeing the meal that made it such a special and life-giving occasion. With the grandmother gone, all that's left are calories on a table. The point is this. This table is not laden with mere calories because God has beckoned us to this table to feed us with the life-giving flesh of Jesus. This, then, is the table of life where souls are refreshed. Now, we've said a lot, so let me take just one moment to summarize where we've been, and then I want to offer a few thoughts for us going forward. We've said that from the beginning of time to the end of time, God is committed to feeding his people. That's a story you can trace all the way through the Bible. God is permanently committed to feeding his people from the beginning to the end. We've seen that God beckons us to his table for the purpose of feeding us, for satisfying our hunger. And because he wants to satisfy us eternally, and not just temporarily, he feeds us with himself in Jesus as Christians, we regularly come to this communion table as guests with God as our host to be continually fed by Jesus every week. And so here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. Later in the service, you're going to be invited to this table. And if you choose to respond to the invitation, you'll come up and you'll eat the food. And there's one very important thing that we must do. And verse 47 tells us what it is. Verse 47 says, Whoever believes has eternal life. When we come to this table, we must believe. And here's what I mean by believe. By believe, I don't just mean you think that it's right, or you think that it's good, or it's what you've always done and you're going to keep doing it. No, by believe, I mean deeply pondering the goodness and truth of Jesus and then acting accordingly. I think we can do this in three ways, and we can do all three of these right here at this service this morning. First, we can believe by recognizing the truth that our inner aches and appetites are chiefly God's beckoning invitation to us. God is our host, and we are the invited guests. Believe by recognizing that it is God who has drawn us here. Second, believe by coming forward with your hunger. Respond to the invitation. Put belief into action 
And now, of course, the inverse of this is also true, isn't it? If you do not believe, don't come forward. This is a table of belief. But if you do, then physically express through ordinary walking forward your desire to be spiritually fed by God in Jesus. Contemplate how your ordinary hunger at this hour of the day actually reminds you of your spiritual hunger for God. Third, believe by eating. Don't just come forward and routinely munch on a wafer or a piece of bread dunked in wine. No, when you place the ordinary bread in your ordinary mouth, meditate on the reality that Jesus is spiritually present in the food and eat it with joy and gratitude. God is feeding you with himself. Eat and be glad. Recognize that it's God who draws you. Come forward with your hunger. Eat with gratitude. This is how we believe. Now let me conclude. I have a friend who planted a church in New Orleans a number of years ago. And he told me a story about a man who had been coming to his church for a while but had never taken communion, and rightly, because he did not believe. But one over time, in fact, over years, he was persuaded and he came to believe. And one Sunday morning, he walked in through the doors of the church and before the service, he went and found the pastor and he actually grabbed my friend by his shoulders and said loudly into his face, I'm hungry. <laughs> I want to come to the table. I'm hungry. What had happened was he realized that his inner aches and appetites were actually God's beckoning invitation to him. And so he responded with belief in action. He came forward, he ate, believing in the reality of Jesus' spiritual presence in the food. And in this service, we get to do the exact same thing. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us this table. Thank you for beckoning us and inviting us, for creating hunger within us, leaving us empty without you. Thank you that that inner ache, that inner appetite points us to you, draws us to you, like a hungry person to a table with food. Would you please help us to believe this morning, to, and to believe by, by recognizing that you are the one that draws us, to believe by coming forward with our hunger, and, and to believe by eating with faith, knowing that you are spiritually present here with us and therefore feeding us with yourself in an eternal way that will always satisfy us. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen.
Hey 